good to be with you guys today. Like uh, Pastor Stephen said, my name is Micah. And uh, how many of you, you have never heard me speak before and you have no idea who I am? Okay, awesome. Love it. Uh, I do recognize some faces. Um, and my wife is actually Steph. She was the one leading worship this morning. And uh, I just love summer. Anybody here love summer in here? It's just so fun. Uh, one of my favorite things about summer is it's actually towards the end of it, but it's the great Minnesota get-together, the state fair. Any state fair lovers in here? You love the fair? It's one of my favorite things to do. In fact, uh, one of my favorite things about the fair is actually the food. Uh, the food is the best. I love the food. And uh, today, uh, this will tie into my text, you'll see where we're going, but today we're actually going to be in Luke chapter 4, so if you did bring your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke chapter 4, but uh, today we're going to cover this concept or this issue of temptation, because the beginning of Luke chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus that we see in the wilderness, but I just thought of some everyday temptations that I would have and I would go through, and I thought of uh, some state fair food temptations, okay, if you know what I'm saying. So I made a list, a top 10 list, that if you were to dangle these foods in front of me and say you are not allowed to eat these, uh, it would be very hard to say no to, okay? So we'll have to see. And uh, keep in mind, this is my list, all right? So you may completely disagree with my number one, like, tastiest food at the state fair. So I don't want to hear any heckling from the crowd, okay? I don't want to hear any negative feedback. This is my list, all right? I was tempted to put Sweet Martha's number one because I was doing some research, and it seems like that's what everybody loves. But here is my top 10 state fair food list, and it's my goal that by the end of this list, you would be so hungry, okay? So here we go. Number 10 state fair food of, of just of the food that would just tempt me the most is how about, about a foot-long hot dog? Anybody foot-long hot dog fans in here? You got to have one of those. Number nine is the corn dog. Anybody like the corn dogs? Yes, love it. We got corn dog fans here. And then this was introduced to me three years ago. It's kind of right by the entrance when you walk in. But number eight is the turkey to go sandwich stand. Anybody been to the turkey to go sandwich? Some of you are like, no, I do not like turkey. That's okay. Turkey to go is so good. Uh, number seven, Tom Thumb mini donuts, everyone. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Gotta love mini donuts. And then number six, I just think it always trumps the corn dog, but I'm a Prano Pup guy over a corn dog guy. So I put Prano Pup at number six. And then number five, I had the classic Sweet Martha's cookies and milk. And you can't just have the Sweet Martha's cookies, but you gotta get the milk. Am I right? You gotta have the milk with it. And then number four, these are my top four that I have, is I have number four at the Sweet Corn. The corn on the cob where they just dip it in butter and hand it to you, and it's so yummy, and it's so delicious. And then number three, I have the fresh cut fries. The, the fresh fries. Yes, you right there. I just got your attention. You What's your name? Brayden just woke up, everyone. He just was like, that's me. Brayden, you're the man. French fries are, are, are the best. And then my top two is I love, this was installed not too long ago, I don't think, but they installed a deep fried candy bar stand or, or Oreo stand. Has anybody tried the deep fried candy bars or Oreos in the room? Okay. I am a big fan of deep fried Oreos with milk because they put this really good powdered sugar on top. And the deep fried Snickers is really, really good too. You got to try that. So that's, if you haven't tried those, you got to try those. And then my number one, can anybody guess? So my number one most this tempted food, it is the original cheese curds, everybody. The original cheese curds are so, so good. 
And anybody hungry now? You're just like, I could go for some fair food. Yeah, right? No, but uh, it's, uh, that's something that uh, my wife and I, we love, we love to go do. But um, we're going to look at this issue or this concept that, that really everybody goes through, that everybody can resonate with. And it's this word, uh, temptation. It's this word of, of being tempted. And uh, in, in Scripture, in Luke chapter 4, we actually see the temptation of Jesus and where we're going to be. But uh, this passage today, in my opinion, and you'll hopefully seem to find as well, is going to be super practical, give you practical application on how to live this life with Jesus and how to walk with Jesus. But it's going to be really relevant. And uh, it doesn't take much to look at the news or to turn on a local news station or different things like that, but to recognize that our world faces crisis or our world goes through different things or our world faces evil. In fact, um, for those of you who were watching the news yesterday, you saw breaking news in Charlottesville, Virginia, that there was somebody who drove their car through a crowd. And uh, I, I, I read a report somewhere that there's now three dead and 35 people injured. And um, it's sad to think that this is where we are at in our country and this is where we live. But as the church, we are called to be the church. And as the church, we are called to step into the life that Jesus gave to us, which Jesus said in John 10, that, that look, I've come to bring life, and I've come to bring life abundantly. And the life that I have for you is not one of merely treading by, but the life I have for you is one that is marked by abundance. And in our world that faces chaos, in our world that faces crisis, or in our world that is literally wrestling with racism or protesting or hate and those different kinds of things, God has given us a voice. God has given us a tool called the church, the very people that are in this room right now, where we are called not to demonstrate and replicate hate, but we are called to demonstrate the very love of God and the very grace of God that's been shown to us. And when one day, when we enter into heaven, or one day, for those of us who said, you know what, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died and he rose again for me. One day when we stand face to face with God, we will not see people that are just like us, but we will see all people from different tribes, from different tongues, with different nationalities, different ethnicities, different races. We will see an array of people in the kingdom of God. And just as God's heart beats for every single human being, we are called as the church to have a heart that beats the very same that God does. Amen? And so I want to shed light on this whole Charlottesville thing. And this isn't my sermon, but I, I wanted to shed a little bit of light on it because we are living in times where there are sometimes more questions than there is answers. And we're living in times where it's uncertain or there's questions about the future of our country or the future of our nation or where we're heading. But there's one thing that I've seen time and time again in Scripture that remains true is that among the rising and falling of nations, among the different world superpowers that came and once were and the superpowers that have now gone, there's one thing that always remains true, and it is the Word of God and the principles that God set into motion from the very beginning of time. It is God that never changes. It is God that always stays the same. It is God that is always consistent, that is always true. And from the very beginning of time, we have had this internal struggle. We've had this internal war, I guess you could say, going on. Because when God created mankind and when God created the world, do you realize something? God didn't have to create us. Think about that. God didn't have to create mankind, did he? He could have created the world. He could have created the earth and everything in it and had that just be enough. But that wasn't it for God. That wasn't enough. But God decided to create man. Why? The whole reason why God created man was so that he could be in relationship with us, so that he could do life 
with us so that one day we would know him. And in the very beginning, we see the most purest form of creation. We see God's best. We see God's standard, his mandate, what he wanted and what he desired. And what it was is it was holy. It was pure. It was something amazing. It was something awesome that God would make man and breathe the very breath, his spirit, his breath into man, and then cause man to fall asleep, and then to create woman. And then when he saw man and woman, he said it was good. He said it was very good. And the reason why there is hope in that is because although we don't live in that world anymore, although that's not our current reality, it can be. And the reason why it can be is because when man messed up and when man sinned and when sin entered the world and when strife and all this confusion and different things messed up, God said there is going to be a reality and there can be a reality of what is going on in heaven here on earth. In fact, Jesus prayed it, didn't he? Jesus said, God, not my will be done, not what I want, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means the realities of heaven, what God's standard is and has always been, can definitely be today. But from the very beginning, we saw Satan cast it out from heaven because he wanted the worship for himself. He wanted the glory for himself to make it all about him. And ever since that moment, it has been an internal struggle for God and man to coexist because there is an accuser and a slanderer, someone who has, from the very beginning of time, tempted Adam in the most perfect condition where there was no sin, where it was holy, where it was perfect, and where it was pure. We see an adversary come an attempt to derail and destroy the very plan and perfection that God set into motion. So it's no wonder and it's no reason why we have what's going on today. The reason why we have wars, the reason why we have people driving cars into crowds, the reason why we have terrorism acts, the reason why we have evil in this world is because it goes back down to the fall of man. And from the day until we take our very last breath or until the day that Jesus comes back, there will be this internal struggle that every single one of us carry, and it's this ongoing battle of being tempted. In fact, if you have air in your lungs or you are breathing and you're alive, Every single one of us can testify to what it's like to wake up every day, go to our job, or, or go to our school, and we see things that maybe we didn't ask to see. Or we end up finding things that we didn't necessarily go looking for, but it just sort of found us. And we have this internal struggle that goes on, and it's literally this struggle of an enemy that literally wants to lure us, to tempt us, to literally see us destroyed and broken apart from God. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus. The Bible actually says that every single one of us was created in the image of God. And because you and I were created in the image of God, do you understand something? Every time the enemy sees you, he sees an image of God. And because the enemy's whole goal is to steal, kill, and destroy anything that is marked with the image of God, it's going to be his utmost desire and plan to lure you away so that you never believe in God, so that you never recognize God, or so that you never, ever follow God. And for those people in here who say, you know what, I follow Jesus, I follow God, you understand the daily struggle that it can be to sometimes say, that car just cut me off, I'm going to make sure... Something happens about it. It actually reminds me of a funny story. My uncle, he's a, a Vietnam uh, vet, and uh, he uh, just deals with road rage, and he'll openly admit this. He deals with road rage, and my uncle, this is not a joke, it's a true story. My uncle will carry a bucket of golf balls in his car so that if someone cuts him off, he'll pull up next to him, roll down his window, and throw golf balls at the other person's car, okay? <laughs> so if your car has been hit by golf balls and you wanted to find the person, 
come talk to me afterwards, okay? It's my uncle, all right? But every single day, the struggle is real, isn't it? Like, we, we, we battle different things. For some of us, we always get tripped up with anger. Like, certain things just set it off, and all of a sudden, it just boils over the top, and we just get angry. For some of us, it's lust. It's lust of the eyes. For some of us, it's greed, always wanting something that isn't ours. Or for some of us, you, the reason why I know every single one of us goes through it is because the Bible says, look, you have a flesh side. You have a side that's anti-God, that doesn't want what God wants. You have desires that are within you, that are in your nature. How many of you know just by having children, you can look that there's a nature that doesn't want to listen to mom or dad, right? It's in you're right there. She's like, yep, I resonate with that. It's because it's in our nature. And the Bible said that every single person was born into sin. So what gives us a right to play moral authorities or moral judgments over people when every single one of us were born on the same playing field? And Jesus leveled the playing field himself. And this morning, we're going to take a look at how Jesus overcame temptation. And this message this morning is completely filled with hope because of who he is and because of what we can gain from him and how we can look to him to live this life that he's called us to live. I'll just say this, if you're here and you're, you're kind of checking things out, I'm so glad you're here because here's the deal, is that our entire life can be spent on meaningless things and attempting to find truth or attempting to find answers or finding what's the source or all these different things, but our life will never actually fully make sense until we one day meet Jesus and God's love finds us. I'm telling you, we can spend our whole life pursuing things that when we get to our deathbed and our families around us or maybe nobody's around us, the only thing that's going to matter is not how much money I had or not how much success or popularity I had. The only thing that's going to matter is did I ever know Jesus? Did I ever follow Jesus? If you really think about it in the grand scheme of life, our life is actually really short. A common thing that goes by for people that I talk to from grandparents or things like that, they're like, man, it went by so fast. Like, my kids are out of the house. They're graduated. They're gone now. And then we're in our 50s or in our 60s or 70s or 80s, and we're asking the question, what happened or what's going on in my life or what am I living for? I really want to challenge the thought process this morning of saying, look, what is the purpose of my life? What's my why? Why do I wake up this morning? Why do I even exist? Why am I even here? Could it be that you're here because of why God wanted you here was to be in relationship with you, to speak into your life, for him to know you, for you not to do life alone, but for your, you to do life with someone who knows you better than yourself because he created you. And there's so much freedom in Jesus. There's so much life in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at three ways that Satan tempted Jesus and it may not be the same way that you're tempted, but we see three things that Jesus was tempted with, and then we see how Jesus overcame it. So if you brought your Bibles, we're actually going to start in Luke chapter 3, and it's going to be first in, we're going to start first in uh, verse 21. So Luke chapter 3, verse 21 is going to start first, and before we, we go into the text, Luke is all about the, the gospel of Luke, by the way, we've been in Luke this whole summer. Uh, we've been going through Luke, and Luke is the longest gospel out of all the gospels. And Luke's primary focus is he just wants everybody to know. Luke is a doctor, by the way. Doctors in that day being very detailed. So Luke puts in a bunch of detail. Luke's very scripted out. He, he In his writings, you, you see this come out in his writings. But in Luke, we see that in the first three chapters, before we even get to chapter 4, Luke is all about pointing Jesus as the Messiah. 
Luke is all about saying, look, here are the credentials of the Messiah. Angels had confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. Mary and Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah and all these different people, they have gave witness that he's the Messiah. John the Baptist have given witness about he's the Messiah. And then, by the way, God the Father himself has literally opened up heaven and said, this is my son. So Luke, in the first three chapters, is all pointing out to saying, look, Jesus is it. Like, Jesus is the one that you're looking for. Jesus is the Messiah. In verse 21, it says this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. We have a baptism service coming up August 27th. Jesus was baptized. Uh, one of the ways baptisms represent, if you're wondering what is baptism or why should it be baptism, what baptism was back then in the original context was people saying, look, I'm turning away from my sin and I am publicly going to tell everyone and declare that Jesus is Lord and that's who I'm going to follow. So when you choose to get water baptized, what you're basically saying is, look, my old life is in my old life. It's not me anymore. I'm choosing to follow Jesus, and you go public with your faith. What baptism was, it was a public declaration of what was happening on the inside of your heart. So if you've not been water baptized, and you're like, look, this is what I'm calling you to do, this is actually a step of obedience to be like, hey, I'm going to get baptized too. So we see Jesus baptized, and it says, and as he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. This was huge. This was insane because up to this point, Jesus is 30 years old. And from the very beginning of time, we see when, or from the very beginning of Jesus' life when he was born, we see an enemy that wanted to try to wipe out Jesus through a, a king ruler named Herod. And Herod said, wipe out every firstborn male, wipe them all out, kill them. Well, Jesus was spared because an angel came and spared his life. And so here is Jesus. And for over 30 years, Jesus' biggest moment, his biggest victory, his biggest, most exciting thing is happening right now at the age of 30 when God the Father actually speaks out loud saying, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And know what's crazy about this is God actually saw it necessary. God the Father actually saw it as important to publicly declare Jesus and who he was, to remind him of who he was in the identity. And the reason being is because Jesus was about to go through his biggest test. So get this. Before Jesus faces his biggest test, he experiences one of the greatest victories, and his heavenly Father affirms who he is. His heavenly Father gives him his identity, saying, look, you're my son, I love you, and I'm well pleased. And I think for some of us, so much of the, our internal struggle or so much of what we battle with, it always comes down to a common denominator. Do you want to know what it is? It comes down to how we see ourselves. Think about this. It comes down to how we see ourselves. Just think about this. Take an average day of your life. Just think about an average day and what you do. How many minutes are spent or how many thoughts are actually spent of negative thinking of yourself? Think about it. How much of it is actually your, your mind is, is constantly being filled with negative things? Oh, I was late to this. Or, oh, someone's going to find out about this. Or, or if, if, if this gets found out, then I'm going to be like this. And it's like our minds are in a constant state of worry or a constant state of anxiety. And our minds are constantly on negative thinking. And where is that thinking reinforced by? It's reinforced by how we see ourselves. Think about it. How we see ourselves or how we even view ourselves ends up impacting our actions, our decisions. In fact, your strongest thought life, what you think about most, will end up leading to your actions and what you do. 
And here's God affirming out loud in front of everyone, Jesus, you are my son. I love you and I'm well pleased. If there's any of you that, that, that walk away, maybe this is the number one thing you need to hear. There is a God in heaven who is not a, upset at you. He's, he's not mad at you, but he's, he, he's madly in love with you. Like, like, like for some of you, this needs to be your number one takeaway that you need to put across your fridge or put across your, 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 your kitchen window that says, I am God's child, I am loved, and he is pleased with me. And literally, what we're about to see isn't a direct attack on those very three things that were spoken about Jesus. And one of the number one ways the enemy gets us is he goes after our identity. He goes after how we see ourselves. He goes after what we think about ourselves and how we look at ourselves. And Jesus is being affirmed publicly. And so now we have the declaration, and now we have about to be the demonstration as Jesus being Messiah. And so it goes on in verse 23. It says, now Jesus himself was about 33 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. So here's the deal. This is just a quick nugget. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But Jesus experienced his greatest victory he had ever experienced. And now he's about to experience his greatest trial that he's ever been through. Here's why this is important. Here's why what we're going through is so important. Is Do you realize Jesus is the only one that gives us this account of what is about to happen in Luke chapter 4. There was no one else in the wilderness with him. It was Jesus and it was Satan. And we have never seen a, a, a display between Jesus and Satan until this one moment. And it comes right after his greatest victory. Oftentimes, when you step out in faith, or awesome oftentimes when God's doing amazing things in your life, or God's working in your life, or God's bringing breakthrough into your life, or you're about to step in and lead a ministry, oftentimes in some of our biggest, highest mountaintops, soon after, if we're not careful, if we're not prepared for it, can sometimes come some of the greatest defeats. I don't know if you've ever experienced before, this before, but the enemy literally attacks Jesus and goes after Jesus right after his greatest mountaintop experience of him being in the wilderness. And so now here we pick up in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Greek word for wilderness here actually means desert, okay? It actually means a desolate place. And if you've ever been to Israel before, Jesus is somewhere between the Jordan River and Jerusalem. It was a dead space. It was a dead land. This was a horrible place to be in. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, in the desert, and it says there, to be tempted. And where he was there for 40 days where he was tempted. Another word for temptation, uh, it actually can mean testing, okay? Um, and so this word is a neutral word in the Greek. And in the English, we give it the connotation that he's going there to be tempted. We give it this kind of this bad connotation. But this word, because it's neutral, it can literally mean being tested. It can also mean that as well. And so Satan will view it as a temptation to get Jesus to be tempted. But God's view of it is as a testing. And what if we viewed it like this? This is just going to be a small blip. But what if we viewed temptations as a test? What if we viewed temptation as an opportunity to say, God, you're bigger, you're stronger, and I'm going to pass this test through your help and through your power. The enemy uses it as temptation, but God can view it as a test. And so how do we approach that? The Bible says that in 1 Corinthians 10 that when it comes to temptation, that he gives us an opportunity, a window to leave it, to have a way out. And that way out is through Jesus. It's through him. And it goes on to say this, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And then in verse 3, it says this, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
tell this stone to become bread. It's interesting that uh, we see Satan tempting Jesus, and the very first thing that he tempts Jesus with is he goes after him in his weakest moment, when he's hungry, when he's alone by himself, no one is there, and we see Jesus being offered bread. And here's the first thing we see Satan tempt Jesus with, is Satan tempts Jesus to become dependent on himself. In his weakest moment, we see Satan attempting Jesus to say, hey, why don't you just become dependent on himself? If you know anything about Jesus, Jesus never lived for himself. It says Jesus always was dependent on the Father. Everything Jesus did was because he was dependent on his Father. And in this one moment, Satan comes to him and says, hey, why don't you do this? If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And you notice how Satan uses the word if? The very way he got Adam and Eve is the very same way he tries to get Jesus. He goes to Adam and Eve, did God really say you're not supposed to eat of the tree? He starts to question as if trying to create doubt. What we often go through and what we can often face is doubt, right? Doubt believing, is this really true or is what God's word actually true? And here he says, it says the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. And here God just got done telling Jesus, you are my son. And now the devil's saying, if you are the son. It's like the devil's way of getting Jesus is to try to get him to think, well, am I really? Am I really the son of God? Is that who I really am? But here we see Jesus say this. It is written, man, man shall not live on bread alone. There's three words that Jesus says. It is written. Jesus' response to the enemy is one with truth. Jesus actually quotes scripture where it's from Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. And that scripture is actually used uh, in the book where Moses is talking about the people and how God will be the provider for the people in the wilderness, that God's going to provide for them. And this temptation right here is not actually a temptation about food. You want to know what this temptation has to deal with? It has to deal with the very character of God and that God is a provider. And Jesus is saying, look, Satan... I don't need to take my life into my own hands. Satan, I don't need to be tempted with that. God is my provider. And by the way, I don't live on just bread alone, but I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew chapter 4 says every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Satan attempts Jesus to, to try to get him to be dependent on himself and take life into his own hands and to provide food for himself as if to say, Jesus, you got to be hungry. Why don't you just do it? Why don't you just take care of it? And Jesus' response is saying, no, I don't live on, on just merely bread alone, but I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He responds with truth. And honestly, what he was attacking is he was attacking the, the, the deity of Jesus. He was attacking the very character of God. And Jesus stands up and says, no. I've seen a common theme among different things that have happened, and my wife and I, we have an 11-month-year-old girl, and my wife stays at home uh, with Everly, and something I've just noticed just with talking with other moms or different things like that is it can be hard for moms, especially that stay at home, because it's like there's this battle that's like, am I even doing anything? Like, am I even making a difference? Like, what am I... What am I even doing staying at home? It's so, it's so routine or it's so mundane. And it's like, I was doing this before, but now that I'm staying home, it's like, am I even amounting to anything? Am I even doing anything? And it's like in those moments of weakness, in those moments of, of being a mom, of saying like that, it can really be like just so much to bear. It can be hard to take on because it's like we're getting attacked in our role as being a, as being a mother. It's like the role of the mother is being attacked. Or the role of the mother and who you are and your identity is being attacked in that 
I'm not doing anything or I'm not living up to this. And I haven't just seen it with things that my wife and I, that we've gone through, but I've seen it with multiple moms of saying, like, am I making a difference or am I doing this? And understand this, is that you are doing an essential and an amazing job and being in an amazing role And the enemy would love for you to think that you're doing a horrible job or that what you're doing isn't sufficient or what you're doing doesn't matter. But what you are doing is one of the greatest responsibilities on planet Earth. And your voice into your kid's life and what you speak and how you raise them up is essential and it is huge. But the very same way Jesus was tempted through his identity is the very same thing that that attacks moms or or allows moms to feel um, like they're inadequate or they're not doing a good enough job. When really that's not true at all. Even being a pastor for the last five years, there was a moment where I almost left the ministry and I almost resigned and I almost quit because I was ashamed of myself or I was ashamed of my past. And it was literally a lie that was an attack on my identity that who I was was not fit to be in the ministry, that who I was was not fit to be able to pastor. And it was as if I endured these different things. And the enemy's whole goal was to try to get me to just leave or to get me to say it's too hard, I'm just going to throw in the towel. And the enemy has different ways that he attacks, but he almost always goes after the identity piece and attempts us to get us to be dependent on ourselves and to take life into our own hands. The second thing we see Satan tempt Jesus with is we see Satan tempt Jesus to disrupt God's plan. Steph, you can come on up. But the second thing we see is Satan tempts Jesus to disrupt God's plan. It says in verse 5, it says, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. The very thing that kicked Satan out of heaven was worship. The very thing that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven was worship. Because he wanted worship for himself. He wanted worship for him. In other words, pride. It was all about him. And God had this master plan for his son Jesus. And just a little bit before, Jesus says, Satan, I don't have to live on bread alone. I don't need to make food for myself. My provision comes from God. And everything I do comes from the will of God. And then here Satan tries to get Jesus to take the easy road, to take the easy way out. Not necessarily God's way, but his way, Satan's way. Not necessarily God's best, but something that was way easier that may have could have gotten to the same circumstance. But you see, Jesus knowing God knew that that wasn't God's plan. But that God's plan was going to be one of service. God's plan was going to be one of humility. And not to get the nations or the world all at once, but to literally serve humanity, to go where people are, to go where the brokenness was, to go where the hurting people were, where the idolaters were, the adulterous, where the people who had messed up, to go have dinner with tax collectors and sinners. That God's plan was going to be for his son Jesus to literally bear the muck and the sin and the junk of the world on his back through a cross, through a hard way, not through an easy way. And Satan says, look, Jesus, I'll give you all of it if you just bend your knee and you just worship me. In one moment, Jesus could have sacrificed God's plan for something way easier to attempt to get it all. There's a scripture that talks about how a man can lose his soul by gaining the whole world. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And the very temptations that you and I face with on a daily basis, Jesus fully felt, but Jesus never bowed to them. Jesus never bended his knee to them. In fact, Jesus responds to Satan by saying this. 
He says this. He says, it is written. You see it again. It is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan attempts Jesus to say, hey, here's it all. And then Jesus says, by the way, Scripture actually says, I am going to worship God in him alone. Some of us in here, we attempt to want to do things our own way. Or if things aren't going the way we want them to go, then we just kind of throw on the towel and take an easy way. Or we attempt to take shortcuts. Or we attempt to say, well, that would be too hard, or I don't want to go through this. So I'll just attempt to do life how I want to do life. Do you understand? The whole... The whole concept here is a dependence upon God. It's a dependence upon his word. And Satan's whole goal is to strip you of that and to say, take my way. My way is way easier. The Bible says that to enter the kingdom of heaven, narrow is the road. But broad is the road that leads to destruction. The whole goal of Satan was to get Jesus to take the highway, the broad way, the way that everybody takes, the way that culture takes. And Jesus says, look, my Allegiance is not to you or your ways, but my allegiance is to God's way. I think of a time where I told my mom one day that, Mom, I'm going to sell all my belongings. I'm going to go to the missions field. I'm going to quit my job, and I'm just going to go with this young, this young missionary couple. And I remember my mom looking at me, and she goes, Son, you better not quit your job. You better not leave your job. I remember I got so upset. I went downstairs in my bedroom. I just started slamming my fist into my bed. I'm like, God, I feel like you're telling me to go to the mission field. Why is my mom telling me I better not quit my job? Why is my mom doing this? And I was just getting so upset and so angry with my mom. And I had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to completely ignore my mom, ignore her counsel, ignore her guidance, and say, screw you, mom. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I feel like I need to do. Instead, I opened up my Bible, and literally, <laughs> this is crazy, but in 1 Peter, I opened it up, and in it is a text about honoring your authorities and honoring the elders in your life. And it was just as if God said, Micah, humble yourself and listen to your mom. So I said, God, I'm allegiant to you. Whatever you want, God, fine, I'll do it. And I was so angry, I was so upset. One week later, I got a phone call from the lead pastor of Cedar Valley Church saying, Micah, I want you to come into my office. I didn't talk to him about anything. He didn't know my plans. He didn't know I wanted to go to Belize and go on this missions field or the, the struggle I was feeling with my mom. He said, Micah, this was in August. He said, Micah, we see a call of God on your life. We want to pay for all of your school, all of your education. Where do you want to go to school? And I had no idea that that was even an option. And God literally, through a humbling of myself with the anger I felt towards my mom, I could have gone to my own ways. I literally humbled myself. And God opened up this other door that said, this is the path that I have for you. This is where I wanted to go. And because of that, I went to North Central University. All my education was paid for. I ended up meeting my wife at this school. And I just think about this. Had I said Screw you, mom. I'm doing what I want to do. I would have teamed up with two missionaries that left the field after a year because they didn't have training. I would have had a year of my life completely who knows where, and I would have completely missed out on God's best for my life and what God wants for my life. And so many of us have opportunities to miss out on God's best because we want what's easier or we want to do things our way when God has a way for us. And the third thing we see Satan tempt Jesus with is we see Satan tempt Jesus to test God. We see Satan tempt Jesus to test God. In verse 9 it says this, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said this again, If you are the Son of God, we heard that earlier, If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Isn't it funny that Satan uses scripture? Isn't it funny that deception always has partial truth in it, doesn't it? It says this, 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So basically Satan says this, Jesus, okay, I get it. Your dependence isn't going to be on yourself. Your dependence is going to be on your heavenly father. Okay, Jesus, I get it. You're going to be all about God's plan and what God has for you and, and to be obedient. I get it. And Satan says this, why don't you prove to me then that your God will take care of you and jump off from this place? Satan was literally attempting Jesus to commit suicide, to act on his own accord and jump off a cliff. And this cliff they attempted, this cliff that some biblical scholars think about, was the same cliff where James was thrown off and martyred for his faith. It's some 400 feet up in the valley of Kadron. And Jesus, they think, was brought to the same spot. Satan could never push Jesus off. But Satan gave Jesus a choice saying, hey, by the way, it says in Psalms 91 that the angels concerning you will guard you and will protect you. Satan, you can jump. And you won't die. Know what I find is funny? Know what I think is really funny? Is Satan decides to use scripture against Jesus. Jesus being the fullness of scripture and the fullness of word. But if you actually read the scripture Satan quotes from, there is actually a prophecy about the destruction of Satan himself. It's crazy. This dude is jacked up that he uses scripture that literally like rebukes him. Look what it says in verse 11. I'll read it to you. Psalms 91 verse 11, what he quotes to Jesus. He tells Jesus, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And then verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Why did Satan leave those verses out? Because that was talking about the destruction of him. Isn't it funny that Satan loves to use scripture or even loves to use truth, a partial truth, and give it to us and say, hey, why don't you go ahead and just screw up? Why don't you go ahead and have an affair? God will forgive you anyway. Why don't you go ahead and cheat on your taxes? Or why don't you go ahead and cheat at your work or take money from your work or all these? Why don't you go ahead and do it? Because God will forgive you, right? God's grace is for you. And it's like we can, Satan can use scripture against us to literally keep us trapped or to allow us to do decisions. But Jesus' response is this. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in verse 13, it says this, when the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. There are three things, three solutions that you and I, that we can take away from this text this morning. Three things that we can apply for our life. One is this, to know your identity. To know your identity. To know who you really are and what God says about you. Satan's whole goal is to attack the very truth that God says about you. That you, are, that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That you are a child of God. That through Jesus, he's given you the right to become his child. And you're not just a child, but you're an heir. That you are dead to sin. That you're no longer in sin, but you are dead to it. And you've been raised to life. Therefore, sin is not your master. The truest things that God says about you you, who you are, that you are a masterpiece created in him for good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do, that you were um, fearfully and wonderfully made, that his thoughts about you are innumerable, more than all the sands of the seashore, that his love is for you, not against you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. The very truest form about you from the beginning of time has literally been attacked to help you to forget who you are. 
And if you know your identity and know who you are in Christ, it allows you to live in freedom. No longer in the shackles of chains, of shame, of sin, of things that try to rule our life and get control of our mind. Because the reality is this. Over every person in here, there is a battle for your mind. There's a battle for what you think about. There's a battle for how you see yourself. And in our mind is where something called strongholds form. What strongholds are is a negative way of thinking that repeatedly happens. It constantly happens in your life. And it becomes a stronghold to where we start living from strongholds rather than living from the identity that God has given us. And when we know who we are, it frees us up. When we know who we are, it allows us to be the most free you that God has ever created you to be. And he looks at you this morning and says, you're my son. You're my daughter. You're free from it all. An illustration I like to think of is when I was younger, my dad would pull up in his work truck and he'd say, son, hop in. We're going to go to McDonald's and get an ice cream cone. And I would just hop in his truck and we'd go to McDonald's. And I felt the most safest. I felt the most free. Why? Because I was with my dad. I was with my heavenly father. I was free to be me. I didn't have a worry in the world. And it's like God is that same way saying, hop in the front seat with me. Let me take you for a ride. Let me lead you. And then when you're with them, you don't have a worry in the world. When you enter heaven, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more fear, no more anxiety. Why? Because that's his resting place. That's his perfection. It's who he is. And that same God gives us that same reality here. And it's knowing who we are. You're no longer a sinner anymore. You're a saint. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. Because you're alive in Jesus and you're dead to what was. Know your identity. Know who you are. For some of you, you just need to put up on your fridge or in your mirror, I am a child of God. I'm a daughter of the king. I'm a son of the king. The second thing we need to do is we see Jesus overcoming temptation because he had a life of private prayer and fasting. Some of you have never done this before. Some of you have maybe only prayed for family meals. Or maybe you've only prayed just at dinner time or at family get-togethers and someone says a prayer for the food. I will just say this. If you want to see freedom at its fullest, if you want to experience God in his fullest, then doing what Jesus did. Jesus would often withdraw from the crowds. When people pressed in the most, Jesus would often withdraw and go to private places of prayer. Prayer brings breakthrough. I can't explain it. I can't fully articulate it or describe it. But when you pray, when you get alone with God, he brings breakthrough in your marriage, in your life, in, your, in, in all these different things. And so much of us, we love taking our problems to our friends. Or we love taking our problems to social media. Or we love broadcasting to the world all what's going on with our lives. But I'll just tell you this. The biggest breakthrough that will ever happen in your life is where you learn to pursue God when no one is watching. I'm telling you right now. When you learn to pursue God when no one is watching you is when you'll experience some of the biggest breakthroughs. In January, my wife and I, we decided to start a prayer room in our house where we go visit it to pray. And it's not always two hours long. Some of us think we need to pray for two hours. No, sometimes it's only five minutes. Sometimes it's only 15 minutes. But we literally felt God convict us saying, start a prayer room. Find a room in your house where you can go be with me. And it has literally changed our life. It has changed our marriage. It has changed us personally. And I'm telling you right now, Jesus modeled a life of private prayer and pursuit. And allowed him to look at the devil in the eye and say, no. My dependence isn't on you. My full of the Spirit. I'm full of Jesus because I've been with him. 
being with Jesus is the second thing. Maybe what you need to do is to talk to your spouse or find a place. If you're a student in the room, go to your bedroom. Jesus says when you pray, shut the door. Go into your room and what your father, what the father sees in secret, he will reward you. Watch what happens as you begin to seek God in secret. Maybe the biggest thing and biggest takeaway for you is saying, hey, I'm going to start a prayer room. The third thing is this. The third takeaway is this, is the word is truth and the truth sets us free. If you notice, Jesus' response to Satan every single time was the truth of God's word. It is written. You know what I love about Jeff and Christy Curry, your pastors? What I love about them is if you've ever been inside their house and you walk into their kitchen, you'll notice Christy Kerr has these verses all over the place in her house. You want to know why? And she'll tell you this if she already hasn't. But those verses have marked different times in their life when it was difficult or it was hard or it was treacherous or you name it. And literally all they had to hang on to was truth. All they had to hang on to was scripture. And it was hard, but in the morning when they get up and make, wash dishes or make breakfast, they would look at that scripture and say it and pray it. I'll just say this. Jesus is the fullness of the word himself. And all Jesus had to say was, Satan, go back to hell. But he didn't. He said, Satan, here's what scripture says. It is written. Three words that marked history and changed history. Three words led by a private encounter between Jesus and Satan. It is written was the solution to overcome the temptation. And for some of us, know what it is? If we don't know the word of God, it's saying, hey, I'm going to start knowing this and start breathing this and start living this and start quoting this. Maybe on the way to work you make flashcards. And on the way to work when you're there, you, you, you play it electronically through the speaker system in your phone. Or maybe you will show up to work five minutes early every day at work. And you say, you know what? We're no one else in my car before work. I'm just going to open this Bible for five minutes. The version Bible app. For any of you who need scripture on certain things, maybe you're battling depression. Maybe you're going through anxiety. Maybe marital issues. There, the version Bible app has different categories of truth that you can get in your life to be able to allow you to walk in God's freedom. This morning is encouraging. This morning is led to be filled with hope. This morning is not to be leaving you sent out, focused on yourself. But here's why we have hope. is because the hope of the world, the Savior of the world, who Luke pointed to as the Messiah, giving the Messiah credentials, overcame Satan where Adam could not in perfect garden pure conditions. Where Adam fell, Jesus conquered in the worst conditions. Jesus conquered in the worst times, in a desolate place, alone, hungry by himself Jesus conquered and Jesus overcame death he overcame sin and the reason why this is hopeful the reason why this is powerful the reason why this is so important is because God knew when man fell and man sinned God knew that man could never rescue himself that man could never pull himself out of the pit but that God would need to send his son Jesus to be the bridge to connect him and you and to say you know what Jesus is your source Jesus is your strength Jesus is your savior Jesus is your grace for your life and the very punishment we deserved and the very scars that we deserved, the very wounds that we deserved to take on ourselves, Jesus bore them all and said, be free, son, be free, daughter, and be the freest you that I've created you to be. We have a right and we get the ability to walk out changed today, to walk out free today, knowing that Jesus overcame sin and Jesus showed us how to do the same.
two questions I want to leave us with, and my wife's going to sing one song, and I want to just allow some space for reflection for you. Two questions is this. What's the temptation that you almost always find yourself getting tripped up over every day? What's the thing that you get faced with every day? And for some of you, it's like that. You know what it is. And then my second question is this. What is three specific things you can do to see your life overcome from that temptation? What are three specific things you can do to see your life overcome from that temptation? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's saying, hey, every time I'm about to see an image or every time I'm at the gym and I see someone beautiful, this is me, and I see someone beautiful at the gym and I'm tempted to look at her in a way that's inappropriate, I'm going to quote a scripture verse. I'm going to quote whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable. Think on these things. That's a scripture verse I have for pray. Or I'll pray. Whatever it is, when we're faced with temptation, you need to know something. God is giving you a way out, and it's an opportunity to pass the test. And he's given us his word to do it. He's given us his spirit, the fullness of his spirit. What are three specific things you can do? For me, one of the things that was tempting for me was, was internet stuff, was, was lusting at different things. And I remember as a young boy, I, I, I told my mom, said, hey, my mom, this is what I was going through. And I said, hey, I'm going to literally move the computer from downstairs, and I'm going to put it in the main living room. I'm going to get radical about this because I don't want this to rule my life. I don't want this to rule over me. Literally brought the computer up. For some of you, if your spouse is saying, hey, there's nothing good that happens on my phone at night, I'm giving you my phone to you, wife. I'm giving my phone, boom, you can look at everything. You can access everything. But what are three specific things where you say, hey, you know what? God, you've given me the power and you've given me the strength. It's not that you're too weak or that you're too dumb, but it's that you are strong enough in Jesus to make the decision he's calling you to make. To live in the freedom he's calling you to live in. So what's the temptation that always trips you up? And then what are three specific things you can do? God, I thank you so much for who you are. And God, I thank you that you gave us a way out and you gave us a solution through your son Jesus. And I thank you, God, that you demonstrated, that you proved to be the Messiah through your dependence upon God, through your dependence to his plan. God... Through, through not testing you, but trusting you. And God, I pray for every single person in the room, God, that they would encounter your grace this morning. They would encounter your truth this morning. And God, the truest thing about them, their identities as sons and daughters, God, would be lived to the fullest because they are more than enough in you. God, that your grace is more than enough for them. So God, I pray you'd meet every person right where they're at. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.